The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Word of God this morning. It's really good to be together, isn't it? Really good to worship together. In fact, um, this morning I had my dad here from the UK and he was sitting right here. And it's really the first time he's ever heard me preach. And uh, anyway, I said, now you know where I get my good looks from. And I said, from my mother. <laughs> that went down a tree. <clears throat> I think he's going to kill me when I get home. So if I'm not here next week, you know why. Well, if you've got your Bibles with you, please go ahead and grab those and turn to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, it's the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and we're going to jump in at chapter 10. This morning, we kick off our Easter series, our Easter preaching series, which we've entitled To Bring Us Home, To Bring Us Home, and this series will run through Easter and conclude at the end of the month. So it starts today, Palm Sunday, and we'll finish, conclude at the end of the month. And really the interesting thing, and let me promise you it's going to be interesting, each sermon in this series will be anchored in this book, the book we're in today, Leviticus. And so we're in chapter 10, we're going to read the first five verses, so just a short passage this morning because I'm only going to really highlight one key idea and connect it to Easter. And so really, this is not going to be an exposition of this text. It's a tricky text, and my pages are all over the floor. Maybe if I could um, have this one switched off, that'd be great, because um, I don't be chasing papers all morning. That's great. All right, here we go. Here's the text. Verse 1, Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. What's going on there? Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I'll be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I'll be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Mishael and Elsaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Let's pray. Father God, you are heavenly Father. And in that name, Lord, is conveyed your holiness, you are heavenly. And your warmth and your intimacy, you are Father. And Lord God, our passage, our text today conveys the truth that you are holy and that you must be worshipped acceptably. And Father, I pray as we just highlight one key aspect in this text and really connect it and link it to Easter in our series. I pray that you would make it clear and as a result, we would worship you thankfully and with reverence. Lord, I pray, would you help me preach? Would you help me be clear? Lord God, would you enable your people to receive your word, which is living and active 
and sharper, sharper than a double-edged sword. And so I pray, Lord God, all these things for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, one of my favorite all-time movies is Castaway, starring Tom Hanks. How many of you have seen Castaway? Awesome movie, awesome movie. If you've never seen it, I encourage you, watch it. It's fantastic. If you've seen Castaway, though, you would probably remember the way the movie kicks off, how it starts, its opening scene. Uh, Chuck Noland, played by Tom Hanks, he is a FedEx employee, and he's flying on a FedEx plane. And the first scene, the movie begins with Chuck waking up. He, he's kind of disturbed because the, the plane he's flying on experiences turbulence. And so you see him, he kind of unstraps his uh, belt. He unfastens his belt and then he has a conversation with the cabin crew and some of the pilots about the turbulence. And they basically reassure him that, yeah, there's a bit of turbulence, but nothing out of the ordinary. And so at that, he goes to the bathroom to freshen up. And the next scene, if you've seen the movie, you'll know the scene. He's looking in the mirror after just washing his face. And everything's still and everything's calm. And he's probably thinking about going home because he keeps looking at a picture of his wife. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's chaos in the airplane. As the plane starts to nosedive and he's sucked out of the cubicle and the cabin starts to disintegrate and break apart and everything's flying about and he needs to hold on for dear life and the, the pilots can't regain control of the plane and it's kind of just nosediving uncontrollably towards the ocean. And, and I remember the first time watching that scene, Castaway, I, I, I was so startled because it's such a, an abrupt scene, smooth. Then poof, and I remember kind of almost jumping out of my chair, like a foot out of my seat. And you know, I get startled in movies pretty easily. I get, kind of get startled in Frozen and movies like that. But, <laughs> but Castaway was kind of a, a unique movie um, of its day because you know, movies back then, 20 years ago or so, they were so slow, weren't they? It, looked, it took about half an hour to arrive at anything remotely interesting. And, and Castaway was from the get-go, immediate. It was jolting and abrupt and traumatic as well. Our text this morning, Leviticus chapter 10, is like in some ways the opening scene of Castaway. Everything had been flying along smoothly up until chapter 10. And then when we arrive at chapter 10, there is turmoil. There's turbulence in the camp. You see, the first eight chapters... In Leviticus, uh, God details to Moses the whole Levitical system, the sacrificial system, basically all about worship. And then in chapter 9, it's inauguration day for the tabernacle. If you recall at the conclusion of Exodus, God has detailed to Moses this tabernacle, this tent of meeting, and he erects it. And so in chapter 9 of, of Leviticus, it's inauguration day, and Aaron, the high priest, and these two boys, Nadab and Abihu, they offer the prescribed sacrifices, and, and in verse 24 of chapter 9, the fire of the Lord comes and consumes the burnt offerings and the fat portions on the altar, and, and as a result, the people celebrate. There's joy. Why? Because they realize that God has fully accepted their offerings, and so there's unity, there's, there's fellowship between God and themselves, and there's joy, and there's liberty, and then we come to chapter 10. 
and turbulence hits because these two guys, Nadab and Abihu, they have a, well, it's a terrible idea. They, they, they put kind of unauthorized fire in their senses and they approach God and they move into the area. Only their father was supposed to go and that only once a year, the Holy of Holies, and they are struck down dead immediately before God and before the people. And, and can you imagine the turmoil in the camp? I mean, they'd just been celebrating liberty from the house of slavery, and God's with us. He's in our midst. He's in our But now there's chaos. There's turmoil. And if we were there, we would have been scratching our heads. We would have been asking each other, what, what just happened then? What just, what just took place? It was, it was going along smoothly. But now this. Well, we're going to look at one aspect of this story in just a moment. Why, why this turmoil? Why the Lord actually struck Nadab and Abihu down dead? But before we arrive there, we need to look at and think about an important connection or a question. And the question is, how does this text, this bleak, come on, let's be honest, it's bleak, it's the pressing passage in Leviticus 10, connect with Easter? And in particular, our series to bring us home. Is there any correlation, any relationship between what's going on in this bleak, depressing passage and our series title to bring us home, which is what? So nice, isn't it? To bring us home, which is so appealing, so attractive. It's a nice title, but this story is anything but nice. And so is there any connection? Well, on the surface, on the surface, there doesn't seem to be much connection at all. But it's not until you kind of break through the surface of this story and start to understand this story in light of the broader, wider plan of God, the plan of restoration and salvation, do we come to realize and see that this passage, this account, makes a valuable, priceless even contribution to this whole theme of homecoming in the Bible. In, in fact, and I, I'll go as far as to say, if we don't grasp the, 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 the point I'm going to highlight, then really Easter will lose its power. And, and this whole idea of homecoming, which is incredibly beautiful and rich in Scripture, one of the major themes in Scripture, would, would, lose, would lose its appeal to us. All right, So this is where we're going to head then in this message this morning. We're going to look at two main things. And I'm going to connect them in to Leviticus. Well, that's the plan, all right? You, you tell me how well I do at the end of the sermon, okay? Thanks, Trent. He's with me. You can sit here, man, just to be my... No, no, okay. All right, too close? Yes, but oh, okay. All right, here's the first thing. A longing for home. Each of these little statements, headings, contain the word home to bring us home. A longing for home, number one. And number two, the way back home. A longing for home, the way back home. So first... A longing for home, a longing for home. If we're going to understand really what the Bible is about, the message of Scripture, then we need to understand one of the key terms and key images for salvation in Scripture. And of course, that key image and, 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 and term is this whole idea of shalom, shalom, or shalom, depending on where you're from, shalom. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pranitha Timothy, uh, Brother Paul's sister, was here. And she preached and she told us her story and it was powerful. And she used the term shalom two or three times in her message. Do you remember when she mentioned shalom? 
Well, that Sunday, I was at the back of the church. I was, I was sitting where Stance is sitting uh, because I had a day off, really. I, d- I didn't have to do anything, which was really nice. And I was sitting on the back, which meant I could see the backs of everyone's head. All right? And every time, listen, every time Pranitha said the term shalom, the ex-Bible college students did this. Mm-hmm. When she said shalom, they were like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. She said shalom, there was a, mm-hmm, there was a nod. There was this kind of... Uh, approval, all right? And the reason is because, Bible college students should know, the, the, the richness of the term shalom, and what it conveys and what it implies and even what it anticipates. You see, shalom, you may have heard of the term and, and maybe you, you, you kind of consider it to be about peace and, and it is about peace, but it's so much more than mere inner tranquility. Shalom means, and I want you to write this down, okay, it means the complete restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Let that drop for a bit. The complete reversal, the complete restoration of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And and what was lost in the Garden of Eden? Some of you are like, well, a lot of things. Well, the main thing that was lost were relationships. Relationships. Eden was Eden. Eden was our home. Eden was paradise because of relationships. And, and shalom, relationships, they were lost, fragmented, uh, kind of frustrated, fragmented through human sin. And, 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 and forever since, there's been kind of alienation, there's been brokenness in our hearts and in humanity. And, and really, Genesis chapter 3 is the go-to text that reveals the tragic loss of shalom, the tragic loss of our home, and it does that by highlighting four aspects, four areas of brokenness and disintegration. First, it highlights, right, we're thinking about shalom. First, it highlights psychological or emotional fragmentation and brokenness. What's the first thing that happens in the garden? Adam, Eve, sin, what happens? They feel, they feel shame. For the very first time. Before they were naked and unashamed, but now they see their nakedness and they feel shame and they've got to cover up. You see, guilt is, is feeling bad and rotten about something you've done, but shame is feeling rotten about who you are and what you've become. That's shame. And they feel shame, they feel ugly, and so they've got to cover up. And now this, this psychological turmoil has been injected into this once perfect home. And then secondly, there's, there's a loss of spiritual shalom spiritual completion, that there's now spiritual brokenness because they hear, listen, God walking in the garden, and before sin, they would have run to God. They would have run and been embraced by their creator, but now they're running away from God. What is that? That spiritual isolation and alienation, this brokenness. There's been this severing now between God the creator and his creatures because of their fear Unhealthy fear of God. There is such a thing as an unhealthy fear and a healthy fear of God. This was unhealthy. Unhealthy. And so they're running away. This is a spiritual fragmentation. This loss of wholeness. And then there's social, thirdly, social disintegration and brokenness. Because what happens? Adam starts to blame his wife. There's this relational tension now. And he doesn't have, listen to this, he doesn't even have the decency to call her Eve. Or wife. He calls her woman. And he indirectly blames God. You ever notice that? The woman you gave me, well, she basically made me do it. He's being so childish and pathetic. 
He's not taking responsibility for his own crime, his own mess. And so we, ever, we see from this point on social, relational fragmentation, blame shifting. And of course, in the very next chapter, uh, Cain kills his own brother, Abel. Fourthly, we also see the loss of physical wholeness. Because now God, as he starts rolling out the consequences for their self-centeredness and defiance, he says, you know what? There's going to be pain now. There's going to be pain. There's going to be pain in family life. There's going to be frustration in family life. There's going to be pain and frustration in your work lives. It's going to be backbreaking. Oh, there will still be echoes of Eden. It's not all dismal. It's not all bad. There will be echoes of Eden, but now it's not going to be perfectly Eden. There's going to be frustration, and there's going to be eventually death. There's going to be death. Genesis 3 concludes with mankind having to leave home. They, they, they leave home. They're banished from shalom. They're banished from home. And ever since, ever since mankind in one shape or form have been searching for home, You've got to understand that about your own heart and about the hearts you do life with. Oh, they will never say, I'm, I'm searching for home. But it's innate and it's, it's revealed and shown by the things that they pursue in life. They're trying to find home, shalom, Eden again in the things they pursue, family, life or money or power or some achievement or image or whatever it may be or a relationship. They're trying to find home in those things. But all those things will leave our hearts restless. Because our hearts, you've got to understand something about our hearts. They are incredibly heavy. Heavy. And nothing we place our hearts on will be able to withstand the pressure and the weight of our hearts. Everything will crack under the strain of our heavy hearts. And so from that moment, from the, the loss of Eden and paradise, mankind have been yearning for home where love lasts, where beauty lasts where relationships last, where they don't rot, where they don't crumble, where they don't fade. One writer, Randy Alcorn, in his fascinating book on, entitled Heaven, he says these words. He says, we are homesick. We're nostalgic for what is implanted in our hearts. It's built into us, perhaps even at a genetic level. That's a profound thing. He's basically saying that this homesickness, this longing for home, Runs through, through our veins. It's in our bloodstream. We long for what the first man and woman once enjoyed, a perfect and beautiful earth with free and untainted relationships with God, each other, animals, and our environment. That's shalom. That's shalom. Every attempt, he goes on to say, at human progress has been an attempt to overcome what was lost in the fall. This is the story of mankind. This is the story of mankind. Lost homesick. And so the question becomes, how do we find home again? If there's this longing, so how can we be brought back home? And that obviously naturally carries us to our second thought here, our second heading, that the way back home, that there is a way back home. And, and this is where I, I kind of want to dig into Leviticus. And maybe you've been sitting there thinking, when, does, when is Lewis actually going to arrive at Leviticus? He's kind of been skirting the issue a bit, but here we go. Leviticus, interestingly, in the Hebrew Old Testament, in the e Hebrew Scripture, is not called Leviticus. 
It's, it's called Leviticus in our English translations because of the whole Levi system, Levitical priesthood, and I guess it makes sense, but it's more than just about Levites. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the, the, the book Leviticus is named after its opening Hebrew phrase. And that opening Hebrew phrase is translated in our English Bibles, the Lord called. That's what the book's called. The Lord called. Now, this is, this is amazing. And it should immediately remind us of the very first reference and mention of this same term, Hebrew term in the Bible, the Lord called. And where is that? Genesis chapter 3. Mankind, they've just defied God, they've just sinned against him. And what do we hear God do? Well, we, we, we see him calling. We hear him calling after Adam. He says, where are you? Now question, do you think God knew where they were? Of course he did. He's he's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Do you you think he knew what they did? Absolutely, he knew. So why is he calling then? Where are you? Why? Because he wants restoration. That's why. He wants them to own up, fess up to their mess. And who knows? It may have been remarkably different if they had. If they would have confessed, who knows what would happen. And so he's calling out. He's calling out. He could have abandoned them. That they would defy, they had sinned against him, his holy authority. He could have just left them to their own wicked, evil devices. But he doesn't. And he didn't. He calls out. And, and how does Genesis 3 conclude? It concludes with God clothing them. Clothing them. What, what, what an image. This is, this is Father. His. Broken, sin-saturated creatures now being clothed. Their shame, their nakedness, this loss of shalom. He's, he's clothing them. And in that act, he is making a promise to them and their offspring, including you and I. And that promise is, one day I'm going to restore what you've lost. I'm going to restore shalom. I'm going to bring you back home to myself. That's what's being kind of communicated in, in, in this act of clothing. They were shamed, they felt shame, and now they're being clothed. And really, this is the storyline of the whole scripture. This is the storyline of salvation, this shalom, this return to home. And so in, in Genesis chapter 3, we, we, we get that same phrase again, that Hebrew term, the Lord called. And this time, it's, it's not Adam, it's Abram. The Lord calls. And, 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 and where did he find him? How did he find him, should I say? As a worshipper? No. But as a pagan. Abram was a pagan. He was from Ur. They worshipped the moon god, for crying out loud. And yet God, in his irresistible grace, he reaches out to this pagan and says, Hey, I'm going to make you this incredible promise. And it's really the promise that undergirds the whole of Scripture. And it's this, that through you, Abram, by the way, I'm going to change your name. It's going to be Abraham, and you're going to be the father of many nations. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so, long story short, the nation is born from his offspring. And they, they find home, or it seems to be home, in Canaan. But then Genesis, how does Genesis conclude? With them having to leave home again, they have to come down to Egypt and find shelter there. Joseph saw Israel, you know the story. So they are strangers in a strange land. And then when we kind of kick over to Exodus, they're not only strangers in a strange land, but now they are slaves. They're slaves. They are exiled. 
as it were. They're homeless again, and they cry out to God for deliverance, a return to home. And God calls again. That same Hebrew term, he calls Moses from the burning bush. You know the story. Moses is sent. He brings them out of bondage, out of homelessness, out of slavery. They, they're carried through the Red Sea by God. Eagle's wings. They're brought to the foot of Mount Sinai, and they receive there the law of God. And they receive the instructions concerning the tabernacle. And Exodus concludes climactically with God, his manifest presence, filling, filling the tabernacle in the very midst and the heart of the community. And it seems, it seems at first that God has finally restored shalom because God's there. Man and God are together. There's no banishment. He's there smack bang in the center of the community. And there's joy and the presence of God is there. They've got the the law of God. But there's one fundamental problem. There's one fundamental problem. And it was this. And it still is. Even though God liked his people, that's why he saved them, rescued them from Egypt. Even though he liked them, listen, he's not like them. He likes them, but he's not like them. He likes them, or more than that, he he has an everlasting love for his people, this commitment, this devotion, this loyalty. He's dedicated to their well-being, but he's not like them. And so because of that, he has to give Moses this stringent, meticulous set of details concerning how his people are to worship him. Why? Not because God is OCD. And some kind of clean freak. No, no, it's because he's intrinsically holy. He's intrinsically righteous. He's intrinsically good and noble and just and whole and beautiful and loving. And his people, on the other hand, they're not. They're intrinsically self-centered, self-absorbed. And so he has to teach them through this process, this means, the whole Leviticus order about what is clean and what is unholy and what is holy, namely himself, and what is clean, namely himself. And he's got to teach them why, why, why? Because listen, worship is the way home. Worship is the way home. There's no home, there's no shalom without worship. Worship of the true God, not any old worship, but prescribed worship, acceptable worship according to God's word, his command. You see, this is where Nadab and Abihu went terribly wrong. They thought that they could just approach God whoever they wanted to. And they were struck down, not for their ignorance, but for their defiance. They had heard the command given, the details given through Moses again and again and again and again. Those first eight chapters of Leviticus, you read them, you'll see what I mean. It's meticulous. It's detailed. And they knew. They knew full well because in chapter 9, they did what the Lord had commanded. And so it wasn't ignorance. It was defiance. They thought, okay, well, we're having a good time. We're celebrating. So let's just take it upon ourselves to do what we want to do. And so they approached God unacceptably. And they're struck down dead. And so God has to warn the people. Not his desire, by the way, but he has to warn them. If you approach me, I will be proved holy. I'll be honored. Because you are sinful, and I'm not, and I'm holy. And there must be this prescribed order. There must be this acceptable worship of God. You see, for shalom to be restored, all those relationships that we looked at at the beginning, Psychological, emotional, 
social, spiritual, aesthetical even, physical, shalom, wholeness, restoration. It all begins, it all begins with worship. That's where it begins. There cannot be all this other kind of healing of relationships without having the vertical relationship with God healed and mended and fixed. You know, we, we, we caught a glimpse of this uh, the other week. If you remember when um, Sachin and Shruti went through the waters of baptism, who was there that day? It was, it was fantastic. It was so encouraging. And can you remember what uh, Sachin said uh, during his testimony? You know what he said? He said, in effect, um, he said, after coming to Christ, right, reconciliation, spiritual reconciliation, after coming to Christ, I found a new love for my sister. You remember when he said that? It was, it was cute, but it was more than cute. It was profoundly gospel. It's, it's God by his spirit restoring what was broken in Eden. This, this now, this reconciliation Sachin, his maker, Christ, and, and the natural outflow of that, the beautiful consequence of that was, you know what, sis, I'm starting to love you. Wonderful, beautiful. You see, we can't have wholeness in all these areas without this vertical shalom, without this vertical reconciliation with God. So no matter what, no matter what we try and um, base our hearts on, our lives on, outside of Christ outside of God, we will always be restless. That's why Augustine, the church father, third century church father, he said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless. You know, this is why Paul prays, by the way, I think it's in 2 Thessalonians 5, uh, 3, 5, where he prays for the church there that their hearts would be directed into the love of Christ. You ever read that? Why? Well, because our hearts are always searching for things. And so he prays their hearts would be anchored in Christ's love directed into his love because our hearts are restless. They're always over the place, trying to find life and meaning and satisfaction in things. And the reality is we'll only find rest for our hearts and our souls, this homecoming, when we come back to our creator, our maker. That's when everything starts to heal and be fixed, where everything starts the process of restoration. It's awesome. So worship is the way back home. Worship is the way home. And you know, look, listen, as, as believers under a new covenant, thanks be to God, all right, we're not under the old system, okay, Levitical priesthood. If you're new here, uh, maybe you're new to Christianity and you're kind of thinking, do, do I have to do all this? No, that's the good news, you don't, all right? It's, it's fantastic. We're now in this, this new era under the new covenant sealed by the blood of Christ, and that needs unpacking, and I encourage you to read Hebrews alongside Leviticus. It's helpful. It's helpful. But you know what? Even as believers, we're thinking about worship. We're thinking about acceptable worship and how that brings us home and gives us a sense and experience of homecoming. You know, even as believers, it is possible to worship unacceptably. Unacceptably. Some of you are like, really? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to what the author says here as we conclude. He says in verse 28, he says, therefore... Since we are receiving a kingdom or home, shalom, that cannot be shaken, right? This Eden restored, shalom reinstated, totally restored. Since we're receiving this unshakable kingdom, let us be, he says, thankful and so worship God. What's the term? What's the word? Acceptably. How? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming what fire should take you straight back to Leviticus chapter 10? 
And so there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. Otherwise, why would he use the word acceptably? It would be redundant, wouldn't it? And so there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. And it's worship that doesn't contain these two elements that he draws out here in our passage in this text. Thankfulness and reverence. For worship to be pleasing to God, for worship to be acceptable, where we actually receive this unshakable kingdom and kind of now, as we foretaste it in the here and now, and finally, when Christ returns, our worship needs to be fueled and fueled by these two elements, thankfulness and reverence. Now, question, here's the big question as we land this plane. Here's the big question. What's going to bring that about? What's going to create acceptable worship? full of these two elements of thanks and awe, gratitude and reverence. What's going to inspire that? What's going to stimulate that kind of acceptable worship? Well, this. When our hearts are melted, melted by the beautiful, staggering, breathtaking reality and truth that Christ, the king of this unshakable kingdom, became a pauper. He became homeless in order to bring us home. That's the gospel. When that message melts our hearts, it will bring about awe and thanks. Let me explain. Let me bring this in together. When Christ came, he came as what? The prince of peace. It's prophesied Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. That he, can, he was to come as the Prince of Peace. That's his Prince of Shalom, who's going to restore home. He's going to restore, restore everything that was lost in Eden. And, and, and his peace would be great, we're told in verse 7, Isaiah 9. It's going to be great and it's going to be endless. It's never going to end. It's never going to fade. It's the unshakable kingdom that Hebrews is talking about. And yet, how did the Prince of Peace come? How did he come? Was he born in a palace? Princes are born in palaces, right? But not Messiah. He was born in an animal shed, a stinky animal shed. Why? Why? Because he's identifying, even at his birth, with us, broken, homeless human beings. He's identifying with us. And then as a toddler, what, what happens to him? He has to flee his homeland. And he's, he, he's taken to Egypt as a two-year-old because of Herod's edict that every male child under two would be slaughtered. And so he went there. Why? Again, to associate, to identify with broken, homeless human beings. The nation of Israel, they were in exile there, homeless in Egypt. And here he is, the true Israel, the true Israel, Christ, the Messiah in Egypt. And then he grows up, and then he starts his ministry. And how does he describe his ministry? Well, this way. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, homes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What is that? What is that? That's homelessness. That's the language of homelessness. Only homeless people say such things. I've got no place to sleep. I haven't got a comfy pillow. I haven't got a nice, warm uh, quilt, doona. I'm homeless, and Jesus says, yeah, that's me. And I'm associating, identifying with broken, homeless human beings caused by sin. He's identifying himself. And then what happens? The cross. He's stripped completely naked. Naked. It should take us back to Genesis 3, where there was, they, felt na- they were naked, and they felt shame. And there he is, completely shamed, 
on the cross. Complete, completely humiliated on the cross. And his, his only possession he had was a, was a cloak. And even that was divided as a final act of mockery before they crucified him. He's identifying with us. He's identifying with us. And then Hebrews 13. And, and this is really the, the crunch. We're told in Hebrews 13 that Jesus died outside the city. The city. He, di- he died outside of the city wall where the temple was. And the temple, of course, was the house of God. It was considered to be the home of God. That's why as a 12-year-old, when he, when he got lost, he didn't lose himself. His parents lost him. And he caught up with them. He said, I, I was supposed to be in my father's house, right? The temple, in the presence of God. And yet now being crucified, he's outside the temple. He's outside the presence of God, which should immediately remind us of Genesis 3, human beings being banished from the presence of God, and Nadab and Abihu, because of their sin, being banished from the presence of God and placed outside the camp. And here's Jesus dying outside the camp. Why? To bring us back in, to bring us home again. 1 Peter 3.18, it's a, it's a summary of Christianity. Peter says there, that Christ died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring us to God, he says. To bring us to God. You see, once we understand this, that he became homeless voluntarily, willingly, lovingly, sacrificially, so that he could bring us back home. He was homeless on the cross. He was a pauper on the cross. To bring us back home to God, that's going to melt your heart. That's going to make you, he became poor so that through him we can become rich, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Melt our hearts. And when our hearts are melted, what kind of worship is it going to produce and create? It's going to produce worship that is full of thanks. Jesus, you were willing to die for me, and it's going to be full of reverence. I was so bad that you had to die for me. This humility. Well, you're down on the dust. I know I deserve death. I deserve the fire to consume me like those two boys, Nadab and Abihu. But instead, you took the flames for me. The fire of God's judgment and wrath burned on you. You received it instead of me. And that will melt your heart. That will melt our hearts. You see, this is the power. This is the beauty and the wonder of the Christian message. And in this worship, we will experience home again. And one day when Christ comes back, he will bring us in, usher us into this everlasting kingdom that will never again be shaken. Nothing impure will be allowed to enter it. The gates of the kingdom will never be shut because there'll be no fear of enemy attack. No sin completely eradicated from God's universe, and we'll be there finally at home. But the gate is Christ, worshiping him, this savior who became poor and empty and homeless for us to bring us back home to God. Let me conclude with this story, this true account from Nazi Germany, Auschwitz. No doubt you've heard of the concentration camp Auschwitz. Ugly, ugly, inhumane, wicked things happen there. On this one particular day, the, the sirens went off at Auschwitz. And the reason is because a, a, a prisoner had escaped. He just he managed to get away. And as punishment, the Nazi soldiers, they randomly selected 10 Jews, 10 Jews to be chucked into the starvation bunker. 
And when they got to the final man, his name was um, uh, Francis Genevchek. He was a Polish Jew. And as he was selected by this Nazi soldier, he was heard crying out, shrieking out, oh, my family, my, my family, my wife, my children, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? And as he cried that, another man, another man standing there, another Jew stepped forward. And his name was Maximilian Kobe. And he said to this Nazi soldier, he said, this man has a family. This man has a wife. This man has children. But I'm a Catholic priest. I don't have a wife. I don't have a children. I will take his place. And to everyone's surprise, the Nazi soldier agreed. Agreed. And so Maximilian Kobe took the place of Francis Genevchek. And so for 10 days, they were placed in that starvation bunker. And, and, and Maximilian had them singing hymns in, the bunk, in that starvation bunker. Singing hymns and praying prayers. After 10 days, when the Nazi soldier returned, only four of them were alive. Maximilian was one of them. And to, to, to give them a quick death, because they needed space for the, 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 the bunker, they injected them with carbolic acid, and they died. The amazing story is of that self-sacrifice, the amazing story is, is that Francis Genevchek survived the Second World War. He survived Auschwitz. And for the rest of his life, he, he only died in 1997, he was 93 years old. For the rest of his life, he traveled the globe. He traveled the world telling people about Maximilian, uh, Maximilian Kobe, about his love and his voluntary sacrifice and how he took his place. You see, listen, the reason why Maximilian Kobe had the grace and the power to do that is because his own heart had been melted by the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. And he had the power to stand in that man's place and say, I will die for him. You see, this is the power that will melt our hearts. Let me conclude by asking you, has your heart been melted by Christ? Has your heart been melted by this sacrifice? Is our worship acceptable to God? Do we sense home, home in our worship because our worship is full of humility and gratefulness? That's the Easter message. And I, I pray that as, as we conclude here and as we think about Easter this year, that we would really honestly look into our hearts and say, is my heart truly melted? Is my heart honestly worshiping God acceptably? Or are we still trying to go our own way? Are we still trying to do our own thing, depending on our own goodness, so-called righteousness? Or, or have we broken through to this, to this grace? Have we broken through to understand what Christianity really is about? Let's stand. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, all of us, Lord God, we worship you. We thank you. Oh, Lord, you took our place willingly to bring us home, to save us, Lord God. And here we are, Father. We're here, Lord. And as your people, we will never, ever experience your wrath because Christ fully absorbed it on the cross for us. And there is no condemnation. We know this. We know this. But I pray that our hearts would be melted by this so that we would have the power to live sacrificial lives as well, that we would have the grace 
to take the place of others, Lord God, to serve and not be served, to consider others more highly than ourselves. Oh, Lord, I pray transform us by the power of your gospel in every part, Lord God. And I pray as we, as we live this way, I pray, Lord God, that the taste, the foretaste of home, of shalom, would increasingly become more rich and real to us, Lord. As we look forward to shalom finally being restored when the Prince of Peace finally returns to bring us home to himself forever and ever. Lord God, I pray, bless your people. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you'd like prayer, please don't hesitate to come forward. I'd love to stand with you and pray with you. If not, have some time of fellowship and encourage someone this morning. Amen. Bless you.